Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am so, so happy today. I don't know why I'm happy. You know, weird things happen in your life during the course of every day. And I'll share this with all of you who are in any business. You know, you take a meeting. Here I am with Sandra Dewey, who is like a deity to me, somebody who is just 20 years at the same company at the highest level of the company, president of TNT and TBS Productions and Business Affairs. And, you know, you, you, you're sitting across from somebody who you, you hope that you want to make some kind of impact on when, you're, when, you're, when you have a chance to be next to somebody who tends to be much more important than you. But you never know what it's going to be like. You never know what they're going to go through. You never know if they just had a baby or if just closed on a big real estate deal. They sold their house or, you know, if something horrible happened, there might be a death in the family. But when you're in these meetings, what you don't think about is what happens in your life before the meeting. You know, you don't ever think about like, oh, is, is, is something bad happening to me and how is that going to affect the meeting? And today is a weird day because I'm in a strange transition personally and I'm moving and and they say moving is the most stressful, but the minute I saw Sandra Dewey, I felt joy. I don't know what it was. It's just, there's something about her that just is the light. And normally if you're out there in the world in business and you're walking through the hallways of the place where you work, what you tend to find is there's three kinds of people 
in your in your place of work and also in your personal life the first kind of person in the office place or wherever you are in your personal life is the darkness this is the kind of person that you walk by them on and the hair on the back of your neck stands up i mean it's like you just don't know what it is they're just in the office they do a great job but they're just you never want to be associated with that person. You want to stay as far away from that person as possible. But yet you see other people you know who you're friendly with, and they have no problem interacting with that person. It's like they're getting cups of coffee in the kitchen, eating coffee cake together. <laughs> their hair on the back of their neck doesn't seem to stand up. And, hey, that's a guy or a girl I'm friends with. How are they able to interact with the person who's the darkness. Then there's the person who's the paradoxal person. The person who's the light, but you can tell they're pushing down the darkness. You can tell that they're just they're just forcing that darkness down as far as they can so it's not evident to anybody. But every once in a while in the office, it shows its ugly head. And they might lose their temper one time time they might you know just completely give you that look that makes you feel like you want to reevaluate your existence or if it's a person in a higher position they might make you feel like you're walking on eggshells with a text that says something that you don't understand and you read the wrong way and then the third kind of person that is in the office is what I like to call the Sandra Dewey-esque <laughs> type person which is the person who is always the light. There are dark forces coming. There are people, don't think for a minute that when somebody works at a company for 20 years, that they're just walking through the hallways and no one is trying to take them out. Know in your heart, if you're anywhere in business, that if you're in a company for a long time, no one wants to see you go from a lower level legal position to the president of the company. No one. There's only one person that wants to see you get there, and that's Ted Turner. That's it, because he's not worried about Sandra Dewey. He could give a shit whether Sandra Dewey has an uprising and it's like, hey, I've got everybody here and I'm going to take over. Well, no, you're not because I write the checks. Mm -hmm. So you can do whatever you want to do. You could even leave if you want and I'll figure out a way to make it. I've made it my whole life. He's the only guy, the guy who writes the checks, who isn't threatened by anything that Sandra Dewey has to do. So you could have people that Sandra Dewey is with in her company who she has the greatest relationship in the world with. And everywhere on down the line. And wherever you are in your business, the same way. But know along the way, those people want to be president. Those people want to be in a position to get there. And those people are trying to figure out how to navigate to get there. Now, what's odd about sitting across from Sandra Dewey is that the essence of who she is, and if you could be here right now, does not indicate a person who seems to be a warrior. Whitney Cummings used to call it an emotional ninja kind of uh, thing where you could figure out a way to navigate while never losing the sense of who you are and your personality. 
And I just want to share with you, when you're moving up in your businesses or your companies or where you are, just really have an understanding of who's around you and be friendly to everybody and be wonderful to everybody, but also know that protect yourself, protect your flank, because at any time, anything can happen. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. I am pumped. We are ready. I am going to give my guest, Sandra Dewey, the proper introduction. I'm very excited about this. So here it goes. And please don't fall asleep during this. It's, it's your career. Okay. Okay. Your first podcast, correct? My first podcast. That's right. I'm we're full do my of, best. We're full of first. <laughs> you do your best. You've already done your best. Sandra Dewey is the president of TNT and TBS Productions and Business Affairs. She is an entertainment executive and serves as the current president of business operations for both network productions. In this role, she oversees business affairs and production for TNT, TBS, Turner Classic Movies, True TV, and Cartoon Network Originals. Sandra attended college at Cal State Sacramento and law school at UC Davis, joining the California Bar in 1987. She began as an associate at Greenberg Glusker, where she worked closely with famous entertainment lawyer Burt Fields. Wow. She then worked for Warner Brothers and Turner in various legal positions for over 20 years, elevating to the business development executive team. She oversaw the business model for Turner's first global series, Falling Skies, and arranged deals that resulted in several TNT and TBS original series, including the hugely successful TNT series, probably the most successful cable series of all time, The Closer, also Rizzoli and Isles, Men of a Certain... Is that pronounced correctly? Mm -hmm. Men of a Certain Age with Ray Romano and Mike Royce, show running that show, mm -hmm. Memphis Beat, Hawthorne, Leverage, Dark Blue, My Boys, which was run by Betty Thomas. Yes. And Lopez Tonight with George Lopez. She was the lead negotiator in the deal that brought Conan to TBS, a move which is widely considered to be a game-changing strategic decision for TBS and cable television. In addition to being lead dealmaker for Turner's Networks, she is responsible for the ongoing formalization and growth of Turner's in-house production studio. When she's not in the office, Sandra is part of Turner Women Today, a resource and mentoring group for Turner women in the workplace. That's cool. We're going to talk about that. Okay. <clears throat> she is active with the charitable foundation Fresh Start and spends her remaining spare moments, if she has any, with her daughters. Her incredible dedication to work-life balance was recently recognized by Working Mother magazine, who named her Turner Broadcasting's Working Mother of the Year for 2014. Please welcome my guest today, very exciting, 
the wonderful, the talented, the amazing Sandra Dewey. <laughs> Thank you. That's very nice. I, I appreciate um, that compliment, and that means a lot to me, and um, I hope that there's truth in it, but I would quibble with you just about a little piece of it. I want you to quibble with me. I'm quibbling. Quibble. Quibble away. Here I go. Now, what I was going to say is there is no question that in these jobs, whether one's like my, mine on the business side, on the creative side, um, there it is not for the weak and timid. There are certainly people who want these jobs and will fight for these jobs and sometimes fight very unfairly. But I would quibble with the part of what you said that the only person who wants you to move up would be Ted Turner. Your point's well taken. Someone who, you know, for whom you um, are no threat, they don't care. But I would say this, you know, if you have the career that I've had and you you devote a certain amount of your energy to um, investing in the workplace and investing in your colleagues and helping people grow their career, you would be astonished at the loyalty and support that comes back to you. I mean, for every ounce of that you put out, you get 10 back. And having recently been promoted um, to my present position, which I'm very proud of and is a long, hard-fought journey, um, the outpouring of emotion that I received from others who were so happy for me was was genuine and heartfelt. People who had um, been on the journey with me and, and with whom I'd shared their journey and given them support over the years, it was so touching and meaningful to me. And um, I remember there was a time earlier in my career when I was evenly situated with another person and I was always told within my company that we would be promoted together. We co-ran a business basically. And he, he was a gentleman, got promoted and I didn't. And we were at the, we were at the holiday party for our group and I, as I always did, stood up to make a toast to the group to thank them for the year and everything and I talked about his promotion. And I, you know, I was, I had my own feelings about it, but I was kind of pressing them down because I wanted him to have his moment. You know, it was for him. And I, when I looked up, I saw people who just had tears coming down their face because they felt bad for me. And, you know, in this thing we do, which is so fun and so exciting and so rewarding, I think sometimes people miss that step of how meaningfully you can connect and grow with the people that you work with every day invest in them and they invest in you that's been my experience well that's great i'm glad you quibbled with me that means a lot probably plenty of people that would like to shove me down too <laughs> but i do feel a, a great swell of you know support and love from people i've worked with yeah well because you're an incredibly wonderful loving person i mean you're, and you're doing a lot of these negotiations mm -hmm. which is it's hard to be friends with people when you're negotiating with them and you have a number that you're trying to get to and they're trying to get to a number. How do you stay friends with people when you're the head person involved in so many different negotiations? I would say this. Negotiating is, you know, it's, it's a tough world. That's for sure. But there's a reason why investing in relationships in the community is really important, I think, when you have you know personal friendships with so many people that you negotiate with it doesn't mean that those people aren't zealous advocates for their business and i'm not a zealous advocate for mine but i do think it means that both people are 
bringing a motivation to try to find a fair place to land in the middle and it allows you to um, efficiently make the deals you need to make. I have been told by many a person that I negotiate with um, that, you know, being fond of someone is disarming and perhaps gets you a little more in the negotiation than you would otherwise get. So I, I get some commentary about that. Um, but the funner part is the people who choose to play rough. And I think if you're a person who comes at it dispositionally like I do, which is I that is that is the last tool I want to pull out of a tool chest. And I think some large percentage of the time it's totally unnecessary. But when I see that people are going in that direction, I do get a little glimmer in my eye because I think people underestimate the toughness that can lie within. And I don't and I don't you know need to pull that out too often and I never do it in an ugly way. But if people want to play like that, it's game on. And I and I um, <laughs> and I have an advantage because oftentimes people don't expect it from me. You are tough. I've negotiated with you. <laughs> You've crushed me like a bug a yeah. number of times. Uh-huh. Well, in my I, I don't I I don't. When I was more of a um, when I had a role as a more of a day to day negotiator and I was doing deals all day long, on the rare occasion when something got really you know tough or in a dark place and I had to get on the phone. It was funny because people would always come and say, can we sit in? People loved it when I was going to go into my <laughs> killer mode. You know, they would come in and just sit quietly because there is an art form to, you know, when you have to get tough. I always felt that the art form was the power of no. Mm-hmm. The power of understanding that if you say no, they have nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And the power of knowing that you need them. And how do you navigate to make it appear like you're saying no, but still get them where you need them to go? In my experience, there's very few situations where the power of no is that simple. The only time it's that simple is if you really are um, willing to walk away. And most of the time, if you're in a negotiation for something, you don't want to walk away. So it's 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 not that easy. You have to find your way through the gray areas. How many times have you walked away in your 20-year career? Not that many. There have been a few. I do tell people who are now negotiating on my team that, um, and it's it, it's always funny, the ones you're willing to walk away from, and I say, you know, just tell them that's it, we're done. You know, it's it, you're either going to make that deal or, or, or we're going to shake hands and part friends. And I always say, and they'll make the deal because when people, it's just like dating, you know, people smell the truth. When you're ready to walk away, then they can't scramble fast enough to say, we're in, we're in, we're in, we're closing, you know, regardless of what may have been said before. I wish when I was dating, more women said they were closing. <laughs> it's always when you say no, that they close the fastest, honestly. Very few, very few deals that I've been involved in have really blown apart and just not, don't happen. I've only been a part of two that, that uh, in my life that uh, went away, and I know why they went away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't feel it was because of necessarily myself at that time. I think it was either one time it was because of the artist just wanting too much. And and I always like to say this to an artist, um, and it's a really important thing to say to them, is if this goes away, are you okay? Are you okay if this goes away and this television show goes 200 episodes? 
are you okay if this film goes away and the guy who goes in and the film makes $200 million? Are you going to be okay with that? And if you're okay with that, I'll go back because I'm fine because it's you, you're the one who needs to decide that. And mm-hmm. each time, and the other time was actually a law firm that um, just, I think, over overdid it and, and pushed them too far. And, um, and then, those and lawyers. I, <laughs> <laughs> those lawyers, those yes. Those lawyers. But Sandra, they say there's three kinds of deals. There's the deal where the person on the other side of the negotiating table says to themselves after the deal's closed, man, I killed those people. I destroyed them. Look at what we got. Unbelievable. And then there's the other kind of deal where the person on your side of the table says, wow, I mean, I can't believe they agreed to this. I mean, it was like my first offer and they're agreeing to it. I mean, we had so much more money here. And then there's the deal where both sides walk away and they're like, "Ah, I guess it was fair. It was a fair deal. Mm -hmm. So out of 100% of all the deals that you've ever done in your career, Mm -hmm. if you would say, how many did you feel like you got crushed? How many do you feel they got crushed? And what percentage do you feel were fair? Well, that's an easy question. I mean, for me, the goal is always, always that middle deal because this is a business where you're, you are going to want to be in repeat business with people, number one. And so um, it's not a zero-sum game. I mean, it's really easy for us to find a place where it's good for me and it's good for the person, whoever it is, the entity, the person who's on the other side. Um, also... You know, I'd like to think that we all have a bit of a um, big picture mentality. We're, we're in a time which is so tenuous for the television business. Everyone is reconfiguring their businesses to try to see how we're going to make money going into the future because the economic underpinnings are changing. And it it has become obvious, if it wasn't obvious before, that we should all be concerned about treating the ecosystem properly. You want everyone to succeed. You want everyone to make money. You want everyone to be paid fairly so that the system can continue in a healthy way. If you're, you know, if you're on an island and you're trying to squeeze every drop of blood out of it into your pot and sort of, you know, don't care about anyone else, you're going to have an island with no business ultimately. So, you know, I, I think the middle ground is not, it's not altruism. I think that's the smart place to land. The only time I shoot for that, I'm going to squeeze you till it hurts place is if I don't like someone and they deserve it. And then I, you know, then there's, I mean, I don't want to be too bratty, but there are people who need to be taught a lesson every once in a while. I'm not above that. I know. (laughs) I know. Have you ever taught me a lesson? I don't think so. Okay, just check. I don't think so, but you know. We're still young. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're young. I am heading towards the pearly gates. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. 
with exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I want you to do me a favor. Okay. I want you to take me way back. Okay. And we're going back to where you grew up, the okay. kind of socioeconomic dynamic, who your friends were, what kind of family, what kind of things you were involved in back then. And then what was the first thing that happened in your life where you said, well, maybe I might want to get in this entertainment business? Hmm. Okay. I can tell you about that. Um, I... Um, I grew up in a little town in Northern California called El Dorado Hills. And people have said, people who know I've never lived in the Midwest, people have likened it to the Midwest. It was very small. Um, I didn't know anyone who was in the entertainment business. It was, it would have been far-fetched to even, you know, fantasize about such a thing. I mean, it just wasn't that kind of place. Um, as a matter of fact, I didn't know one person who was a lawyer till I went to law school, if you can process that. It's very different than, you know, life as we know it here in Los Angeles. But what made you want to go to law school? Well, I was a big, big, big reader. And so I, I was fascinated. I read a lot of um, true crime books. And so I sort of envisioned myself as a, a criminal lawyer because that's what I saw on TV and what I read in books. And so I and I never ventured very far from home. My parents didn't want me to go very far. I went to school locally, and I went to UC Davis was um, a fairly close law school, which is where I went. And um, it wasn't until I was in law school that I started to get a notion of the much greater world of how lawyers could practice. And I remember going home and saying to my dad in my first year of law school, like, Dad, you know, these big law firms come, and they compete for you. If you get good grades, they compete for you, and you get offered these jobs and what seemed like an astronomical amount of money. And my dad thought someone was pulling my leg. Seriously. He was like, who told you that? <laughs> anyway. What did your dad do for a living? My father was a career military person. He ha he was retired, but he was um, he was in the military and, you know, retired as a colonel in the Air Force. And, and were your parents still together at the yes, time? Yes. Yes, they were. They were. They ultimately divorced after a long marriage. But at that point, they were, they were still together. But this little place that I grew up in... Um, I'm super appreciative of, well, first of all, it was a very sweet and wonderful place. I mean, it had its shortcomings because it was very circumscribed in its view of the world. But I'm super grateful for what I think I took from it, which was, you know, people there, this is, I, I, I hesitate to say this because it's almost like I think people won't believe it. People didn't really care how much money you made, nor were they impressed with what we consider to be the markers of success really. In in the community where I grew up, the right things mattered. I mean, you were really judged on the integrity that you brought to life and whether you were part of the community and how you um, lived in the context of your family. I think this is really important, and I'm going to stop you here for a second and have you I'll expound on this. Because sometimes I think 
we lose sight of what are the markers of what you're supposed to be as a kid and what what your what the influence is supposed to be as you grow up mm-hmm. and so besides the integrity and and being you know good with your family what were some of the markers that you were taught as a child by your dad and your mom to take with you in life as you grew up well you know one of the huge adjustments i had when i moved to la was there there was a there was a premium um on being a fair person like you didn't it wasn't like how much could i get you didn't want to get more than was your share that you would have been embarrassed by that that was sort of the culture from where I, where i grew up you would never try to cut in front of someone in line you know people paid attention to those sort of things and people who did that they they were bad people you know good people were the ones that said you know after you and and let's treat everyone fairly so when i came to la and there was this sort of you know, massive humanity and people were like, it, it was kind of a badge of honor if you could figure out how to beat the movie line or whatever. You could get to the Hollywood Bowl and get your car out before everyone else. You know, people, that was a big victory, but it was it was a shock to my consciousness. I, I lived in a state of kind of uncomfortableness about that. And I always remember, this is, this is kind of funny, um, in my early years here, that movie Seven came out with Brad Pitt and someone must have invited me to go to, you know, there was a I don't know if it was the premiere or a screening of it or something. And there was a group of us, we were lined up outside. There was like a little, you know, velvet rope and we were all in this line and, and they were starting to let people in and up comes this person who in my mind I have decided was an agent just based on the suit and the gate, um, but comes kind of marching up and just steps literally right in front of me in line. And I was so flabbergasted by the boldness of it, you know, and I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, excuse me, you know, is there a reason why you think you're better than all these people who've been waiting in line? And he said to me, many. <laughs> and I, I learned everything I needed in that moment. I said, I, I, under, I understand LA now. I really do. I mean, there is just a sense of, there's a sense of, you know, it's okay. If I can, I will. And I'm not everyone, obviously, but. How did you respond to that? I. You know, in the end, I I don't subscribe to that belief. I mean, but I'm pragmatic at heart. There was clarity in what this person said. I mean, he was like, I think I am more important than the people in this line. He wasn't even apologetic about it. And I was like. And later on, you negotiated with him and crushed him. One can hope. So that's really interesting. That 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 means a lot because you know, as I I raise my boys who are nine and ten, you know, sometimes, and the people out there, if you you have children or you're thinking of having children, it's just you you want to know that you're doing the right thing, and you don't really at the time that you're doing it, no matter how much training you have, you still have doubts about how it's all going to work out. And you, of course, have children, and um, I do. Mm-hmm. No gray hair yet, but. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, oh, they, 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 uh, I, I get some gray hair over them, whether it shows or not. They're 14 and 12. That's a, <laughs> so you've instilled the markers. I call them markers because you called the markers of how you were brought up. And now they're growing up, presumably, no, sorry, I didn't say assuming, 
that's a bad word. Mm -hmm. Presumably that you're in a situation where you have them in schools that actually cost about $25,000 a year each for them, maybe 30000 This is what's funny about these private schools. You go and you pay your tuition, whatever, twenty-five dollars to $30,000, maybe more for each one of these private schools. Because what happens in L.A., believe it or not, for those of you all over the world or where you're listening, this is going to be very hard for you to believe. In L.A., I believe there's two or five towns in L.A. that actually are acknowledged to having schools equal to a private school. Uh, the Santa Monica school system, Santa Monica, Palisades, Malibu, uh, for some reason, those do. And you go to a school in Malibu, if you were to walk on a campus of a school in Malibu, you would be blown away because... There is no, I mean, it looks like something from 1950. Same with the Palisades, same with San, a lot of these school systems are, they're dilapidated. But those three areas have great teachers and they're acknowledged as great. But a lot of people don't choose to live in those towns. So, and then there's a, Venice, I believe, has a good school system and there's two more somewhere else. But other than that, all the other ones are not acknowledged to having excellent school systems. So if you live in, let's say, a great area of like, whatever, the bird streets in Hollywood, or you are in Sino, or, you know, even Bel Air, you don't have a school system that you can go to, so you have to pay the money. And, and if you have two kids, you know, and you're talking about 12 years of school, you're talking millions of dollars. But what's weird, what's weird is you get to these events where you go and you're with, you know, and your kids are running around doing whatever, and somebody will just inevitably walk up to you and say, uh, "Hey, Sandra, how you doing? How's the new job? Good, you got the promotion? Oh, we're so we're so proud of you here at Harvard Westlake. <laughs> so proud of you. It's wonderful. You know, we're building a wing over yes. there on the other side of the uh, campus. Yeah, beautiful new gymnasium and everything like that. Yeah." 4.7 million. Yeah. No, that's just for the floor. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, can we count on you? You know, what? Yeah. <laughs> dot, yeah. dot, dot. Yeah. It's like, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but, um, you know, Bob Greenblatt, you know, he's over at NBC. Uh, he, uh, he just gave us a hundred K for the uh, gymnasium floor. Really generous guy. Nice guy. Uh, what are you planning in the yes, future for us? Yes. And that's what this is what they do to you. They just they just completely like manipulate you. You're face to face with these people, and you're like, uh, how do I just tell this guy? Uh, listen, isn't what I'm giving enough? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but I but, feel you. But what markers do you have with your kids that are the hardest to get them to follow, knowing that now they're not growing up in this little tiny whistle stop town mm -hmm. they're growing up in these private schools where people are coming in with a bag you know mommy um uh you know uh, josephine came with this really great bag it's amazing it's chloe it's you know 2750 dollars yeah her mom is britney spears okay mm -hmm. that's why she has the bag mm -hmm. I don't think you're going to get the bag mm -hmm. so like how do you deal with these things where you're now your kids are growing up in a world that's totally unlike the world you do. How do you keep the markers? Uh, it's it's super challenging. There's no getting around it. It's super challenging. Um, you know, I, I do think 
there's there's when you're in the sort of Tony world of these very expensive private schools, on the one hand, it 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 is awe-inspiring to see the kind of wonderful education that the kids get and they're exposed to so many things. I mean, it's I I sit there in wonderment just over what happens at my kids' school on the positive side. On the negative side, and despite the fact that there's many, many, you know, wonderful people and wonderful families, there is no getting around. It is in environment filled with a certain um, kind of person by definition. These are very, you know, wealthy people typically who are at the school. And there's a culture, whether every, whether it's intentional or not, of sort of entitlement and expectation that comes from kids who are grow up with experiences where they're traveling the world and have things and live in a big house and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you can talk to your kids about an alternate reality, but if they don't see it or live it or breathe it, you know, those words whistle through their head and don't have much meaning. I mean, I, of course, talk to my kids about the values that I think are important and who I want them to be. But talk is such a small part of what happens with your kids. I mean, I think the best thing that I can do to sort of counterbalance some of the external influences over which I have no control is to set an example by my own behavior, which isn't always that easy, by the way. But you know, I try to keep at the forefront of my mind that, you know, what I say is worth, you know, a small amount. What I do is impactful because they, when they see how you interact in the world and how you treat people and what you prioritize and what makes you angry and what you cope with and how you cope with it, all those things, they're internalizing those things. That becomes the template, you know, by which they're making their own decisions when they get older. And so I, I try to, you know, be as consistent as I can be about that and to be the best example I can be. You know, it's interesting what you said because most parents, have, I, I think kids have heard this expression, which is the antithesis of what you said. Do as I say, not as I do. Mm -hmm. You're a different thing. You're like, listen, do as I do and do as I say. Yeah. That's great. Oh, God, this is so good. You have no idea how important this is. This is so Because <laughs> this lets people know, like, how you are as a person and what it's all about. So let's keep going with the law school thing. So you decide to go to law school. You you know, I love Perry Mason as a kid. I didn't yeah. go to law school. I love watching anything having to do with a courtroom situation. I will, I will go see it. I will watch it. I love it. But I never became a lawyer. I still love those things. I mean, like a million other people, I just um, consumed, you know, that podcast serial. I couldn't wait to hear the next episode and more recently the jinx on HBO. I mean, th I still love those stories about to watch the staircase, which is another one of those that I heard is fantastic. Now what's odd is that <clears throat> unless I'm, I'm not aware of it, 20 years at TBS and TNT. Yeah. I don't believe there's ever been one courtroom drama. How come? Uh, no courtroom dramas. I'm thinking. Like every episode ends in the courtroom or starts in the courtroom or something. That's funny you say that. Well, it's been done a lot. I would say that. Not that they can't be very good. When's the last time it was done successfully that the show ended up in syndication? Well... Gosh, look at Law and Order. It's still chugging along, you know, and it's still very good. Yeah. And so 
those you've syndicated and put on your so that, that yeah we we have been the buyer of yeah. you know that show that that show had an important role in TNT's success. Why do you think it is? And I'm, I'm going to get back to your story in a minute while you're on it. Why do you think it is? This is something that a lot of people don't understand, and I know that I I personally don't always get it. You'd think that if a show's on the air, let's say. Let's just take uh, when Seinfeld was on the air. And it's on the air, and there's original episodes coming on NBC, and you've gotten to the 100-episode mark, and now they sell those 100 syndicated sale, And TBS bids for it, let's say, although it did go all across the country. But let's say that's a show they bid for. They get it. And then the original episodes of Seinfeld continue on NBC, yet you're airing... Seinfeld every day and it it doesn't seem to affect it at all it doesn't seem to hurt it which is odd you would think if there's more of something available for people to watch it would damage the original plays but it seems to help the original plays why do you think that is well that's a certain mythology I think about um about you know diluting the value of something well first of all this whole system of television and how it used to be watched is changing. So we are talking a little bit historically. <laughs> you know, it used to be, I think this has changed with the advent of on-demand viewing and a viewer's ability to just selectively choose what they're going to watch. But there were many years where, um, you know, if you loved Seinfeld, it was only on that half hour a week. And there were lots of people who were sitting around with their television for lots of other hours who were interested in watching Seinfeld. And, you know, a lot of television historically has been what we call collision viewing. You sit down, you're flipping around to see something that you respond to. And with a show like Seinfeld, where people could watch it over and over and not get enough of it, um, there was a plenty of audience that would collide with that and stop. And in fact, you know, there's a lot of research that shows those syndication cells actually helped bring new audience people who just hadn't watched it before and then found it and then would go over and start watching new episodes um but like i said that whole system of syndicated television that's been such an important part of our ecosystem and funding the business is really diminishing now um those shows even good ones don't work in the same way because people don't collision view as much anymore now you you know you can watch stuff on VOD, you can record things, you can, you know, there are the all the streaming alternatives with Netflix. And so um, people aren't so much flipping on their television and just poking around, they're choosing something they want to watch. But does it, <clears throat> let's talk about the new, how things are changing. Because this is something I don't understand why it really truly should affect the show. You have the television which the source the, the the rating system for television is is so it's the only thing in the world that isn't moving in the right direction it's like it's literally like radio it's like old radio or old talk old silent pictures it yeah. just ridiculously bad <laughs> it's like you don't understand why some kind of chip just can't be in every television and just show who's watching what when it's like they say the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl was watched by 120 million people. No, it wasn't. Do you know anyone in the world, anyone in your life that ever watched a Super Bowl alone <laughs> at their television? Yeah. Oh, 120 million. No. Mm -hmm. 
there's people in rooms there's 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 millions of people many more millions mm -hmm. and so you don't know but so you don't know technically what really the ratings are for a show but in VOD you you can know who everyone who does it so you have that rating the mm -hmm. streaming on Netflix you have to know what it's going to do yeah, well, that's so it's like so when you're doing the rating system now what's what's the difference you just add up the factions that they are and you find out the rating or is that not acknowledged and that's not people don't in the business don't look at that well it's it's not that simple um i do i think that there's going to be a technological advancement ultimately so that we really know who's watching and and can count those people and actually um you know because so much of television is paid based on performance there's a whole lot of watching that's going on that is that the makers of these shows are not being paid for, which is a problem because, um, you know, you got to support the system that makes the shows. But for example, um, right now, whoever watches something on VOD, that data is actually controlled by a variety of different distributors, whether you have Comcast or DirecTV or Time Warner Cable, that information comes through that cable system. And whether they are collecting it and sharing it is a big question. There are reasons why, you know, companies don't like to share data. So we as networks would find that very, very valuable, but we don't have the ability to control it or count it. Well, wouldn't you just say to the cable carrier, hey, we're not giving you our networks unless we get it a certain way? Well, let's go back to where the part where we started where we said you have to be willing to walk away if you're going to say something like that. Those cable operators make up half of the revenue you know approximately of um you know the cable companies like ours and i would just delicately refer to that as a mountain of money so you know we are in a constant dialogue with them about trying to uh, get information so we can be smarter and properly paid which again feeds their ecosystem this is back to what i was saying before every piece has to succeed if we're going to maintain the system that is keeping all of television going as we want it to be but they there are countervailing reasons why they want or don't want to share data. It's valuable, and they control that piece of the puzzle. It's one of the reasons why Netflix, which, you know, I don't know, my company might want to punish me for saying this out loud, but, you know, that's a really brilliant and successful business in some significant part because they have all that data about their viewers and what they watch and how to feed them more things that they watch. I mean, they have a real specific targeted conversation with the people watching that system and it it allows them to succeed in a way that you know traditional television is handicapped talk about that business model there and how that business model that netflix is doing could be something that could be in a hybrid form adopted by a regular network mm -hmm. how could that happen well I'm not exactly sure what you're asking, but I would say that, you know, people who are, <laughs> it, there's obviously a huge incentive in the world that I live in, which I will refer to as um, traditional television, where broadcast and cable television lives, to kind of stick your head in the sand about what's happening. And by what's happening, I mean people's ability to watch shows other than on the television, which is where you make your money and get paid. There's a tendency to diminish you know, the speed at which people are leaving and how threatening that is to our business. But that's just hubris. I mean, it, it, anyone with common sense who watches television can tell you that 
the world is moving towards a place where people don't care what network something on they don't care what time it's on I think there's an ever-growing expectation that you're going to sit down on your sofa either with your laptop on your lap or watching a television and you're going to expect to turn it on and turn on the show you want to watch regardless of what time it is so I think you know we in the linear television business have to on the one hand continue to service this very lucrative business which has existed and still exists but also have one foot in a camp where we're looking at how we can build a thriving and successful future business. And there's no question that that means you have to be able to deliver um, your programming on an on-demand basis and you have to be able to stream it and all those kind of things. Now, whether that means that ultimately, for instance, you know, the Turner Networks are part of Time Warner, maybe we create our own streaming service that's a competitor for Netflix and we roll all the Turner programming, all the Warner Brothers programming, all the HBO programming into one big service, and and we sell that on a month-to-month basis. That's one thing that could happen. Maybe we just end up in a deal with a provider like Netflix, and they pay us for all the programming. Um, You know, all of these things are being modeled and considered, and the delicacy of it is, you know, how much that system undermines the traditional system so there's a delicacy to deciding how quickly you go over there because you're going to pay an opportunity cost for the revenue you would give up now now what you'll find interesting about me is that i have not uh, had cable television for three years i don't have i think i have one television in my house that my kids have apple tv um you're missing so much amazing programming there's never been better programming on television than there is right now true but when you have kids in the house sometimes you want to make sure that they are doing something other than watch television i want them to watch television one of the things that happened with them which i shared with my office which is fascinating i turned them on to a show that i'm embarrassed to say that i never watched on a regular basis the simpsons Mm -hmm. i turned them on to the simpsons Mm -hmm. instantly loved it yeah, I had that arc at my house too a few yeah. years ago. So, and this was only a few months ago. Mm-hmm. So they complained to me. One of my sons comes to me the uh, about a week ago and says, "Daddy, um, how come there's not this season year through this season, and then there's not this season through this? You can't get them anywhere. You can't get them on iTunes. They're not on Netflix." How come you can't get him? I said, well, maybe Matt Groening, the the owner, uh, uh, Groening or whatever, I forget to pronounce his name. Uh, maybe he just owns them that certain certain way, or I don't know how it is. Uh, but don't worry, you can just you know, just watch um you know another season. Daddy, I I watched the other season. Well, you know, just watch one of the other you know fourteen seasons that are on there. Daddy, I I, I watched all fourteen seasons. I said, you watched all 14 seasons? <laughs> you said, may have one TV, Barry, but it's getting I a s- lot of use. I said, that's over <laughs> That's over 200 episodes. Yeah. Well, that, 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 that's crazy. Maybe you could just, just watch a couple again. Daddy, I've watched them again. So it's like they really, when they focus yeah. in on something, whatever. But I am missing the programming. But I find on Netflix what frustrates them and frustrates me is the fact that you, you know, you're excited. You you think of a movie. I want to see that movie, mm-hmm. and then you go on 
to Netflix and it's not on there. Mm -hmm. And then you go to Apple TV and it's not on there sometimes. And it's like, and so there's certain series that are on certain ones that aren't. Yeah. And it's like, for me, I know how exciting it is, Netflix. And I know how exciting it is to see things that you want to see. But I get frustrated when things aren't all in one place where I want them. And I don't understand why I can't have them all in one place. Well, it's, that's a, that I think is a, um, a common viewer complaint and there is an inconsistency in the marketplace right now. I think this will all resettle in a place that becomes much more consistent. But right now, all these various forces we've been talking about are pulling on one another. And there's also, you know, it's, it's new enough that people who own these shows like, you know, Fox owns the Simpsons or, you know, Seinfeld shows like that. There's a reluctance to just throw them all up and sell them because everyone's afraid something bigger is going to happen or what happens next and no one wants to potentially make the move where they're shut out of future, you know, significant revenue. But um, I think, you know, this will all settle down in a way that becomes consistent and where we all get facile about where to find things and how to find them. And our kids are way ahead of us. You know, they can they don't struggle too much with this stuff, I find, you know. My kids are expert at Netflix. They don't even know networks. You know, it's like, who cares? They they find what they need to find. And I, I've been getting a kick out of watching them discover old gems. Like my 14-year-old a year or two ago watched all the Friends episodes. And it was so fun to watch her getting such a kick out of it. That's awesome. Yeah. So you don't mind if we go back. So you're. Go- I just want to go back to where you were. So you're going to law school. You're, you're, you're doing well. You finish law school. You, you well, here's, here's the short story about law school because I, I will tell you, it's kind of funny to me now, but I never expected to leave this area where I grew up. I thought I would stay there near my parents, near the friends I had all my life. It's so different than how I feel today. But, you know, I had a, I had a very small worldview, I say affectionately towards my younger self. But and I'm I say this with humor because it's so embarrassing. But the reason why I ventured out of the nest was not because I became ambitious or had a vision. I had this boyfriend who said when I was in law school, like let's let's move to a big city, and I thought I was kind of patronizing him a little bit. But I I took a job as a summer clerk at a firm in Los Angeles, the one I can see out your window right there, <laughs> thinking I would come for the summer and then you know go back home. And for me, that was like my first time away from home. You know, most people go away to college or whatever, and I lost my mind. I had so much fun. And so when they offered me a job at the end of the summer, I took it to my shock, my family's shock. And then it wasn't till I... Do you I... know why they offered you a job at the end of the summer, Sandra Dewey? And they had tons of interns and assistance during the summer. Uh-huh. But why did they offer you the job? Well, I don't know. You would have to ask someone else that question, but I will tell you. <laughs> but, I, but I will tell you this, because it's interesting that, um, well, a couple things I would mention about that, one of which was you, you talked about the schools I went to. You know, in this highly competitive world that I live in here, that we all live in in the entertainment business, those are not elite institutions. No offense to, you know, and, my colleges. And I was saying that before you came in, and I was like, listen, this is, a, this is a metaphor for anybody. You can go to any school. Yeah. You don't know how many conversations I've been in where people say, what? Where'd you go to school? And when I was a summer clerk at, at Greenberg-Lesker, you know, most of the 11 summer clerks came, you know, from Ivy League schools. I didn't, I didn't even know that was embarrassing back then. <laughs> Someone had to teach me that. But um, I do think it's, it is it is 
in a certain way, nice to know that, you know, look, there's all this talk about you can live in America, you can do anything. Um, that's true and not true at the same time. But uh, it is a source of some pride for me that I was able to um, accomplish some things despite that being an impediment, the kind of elitism that people have about schools. Um, so I wanted to mention that. And then the other thing I was going to tell you was it was funny. At the end of our the summer clerkship, I don't know, there was 11 of us, but I can't remember how many people got job offers, but they asked everybody what area of law they wanted to practice in, and everyone was fighting for the entertainment spots. There was only one. And I could not have run away from it more. I didn't, that it was, <laughs> it was so, my personality was like, oh no. You know, like I, I do not want to be in that mix at all. And so I started off as a corporate lawyer, and I only, I, I got into the entertainment business very sideways, which is kind of an interesting story. But um, yeah, <laughs> I didn't chase it. Tell, tell us how, it, it's always, you know, with actors and actresses, sometimes I think to myself, the ones that say to themselves, eh, I don't know if I want to do this acting thing, they're the ones testing for everything. Yeah. And the ones who are like, I have to be famous. They're the ones like struggling. Yeah. And so what was the sideways story of how you got into this entertainment business? Well, as I said, I was a corporate lawyer. And um, I will honestly share with you that I was not a very good one. It was boring for me. You know, I was not in the right spot. And so I was dying. I mean, I'd always thought of myself as a fairly smart person. And then those two years that I was doing that corporate law, I was like, I think I might be dumb. I couldn't concentrate on anything. It was just boring as crap for me. <laughs> and then something happened, which you really have to turn your head back in time. Um, Michael Jackson came to our firm as a client. And he, you know, so much has transpired in the 20 plus years since then. But at that time, he was at, you know, his career was very big and he was, he had been very reclusive and sort of secretive and he had changed over his whole management. David Geffen stepped in and said, I'm going to reshape your career. And so he sort of came out of the shadows and had this very public, you know, participation in things that he'd never had before. That was the Sandra Dewey slash Michael Jackson era. So he came to the firm and overnight he was the firm's biggest client. Did he come in for a meeting? Uh, well, he, he did at times. I wasn't, in the early days, I wasn't really a part of that. But there was a whole sea of people who were put into different tasks. And I was, um, I had a very narrow, you know, piece of it. But I was assigned a piece of this Michael Jackson world. And that was all under Burt Fields was his lawyer. And then because Michael, I don't know how to attribute this exactly. But, you know, he had, an as you would imagine, an eclectic group of representatives. And they didn't like dealing with many of the lawyers and so it just narrowed and narrowed where I was getting a lot of calls about from a people perspective I navigated it a little more easily than some other people so I started getting more and more of the calls at about things and so Bert who is a you know Bert is a smart guy at some point he reached down and he kind of plucked me and he said you're even though I was junior lawyer and he said you know you're gonna I'm gonna put you as kind of the not that I was responsible for all the legal work, but I did kind of have this role of seniority and sort of being overseeing a bunch of stuff. And so that happened, which was fun. So he made you the point person for Michael Jackson. Well, other than not his litigation, there were there were pockets, but kind of all this stuff. And one of the really fun things that I did was I did the work for, he was at that time, well, I did a whole bunch of fun pieces. He did the Super Bowl halftime show. 
he did what was this is kind of common now but at the time it was a really big deal he did this hour-long special with oprah and then i was doing all the work he was went on this world tour and so i did the work i did the legal work for that and when he went out on the tour you know they would go out for three or four months and then they'd come home and then they'd go back out and i would oftentimes fly out at the very beginning just to make sure everything was running and i'd be with the management people for a day or two and then i'd come home well he was like two years into the tour and um, I was, he was getting ready to go out. I was going to go to Thailand, to Bangkok for a couple of days. And it was a Saturday, and Bert called me into the office. And I went into the office, and he was there with, do you know who Anthony Pelicano is? I believe I do, but tell our audience. He is, he is I think he's still in jail. He was recently, in the last five years or so, he was... Um, convicted of illegal wiretapping he was used by many members of our entertainment community to you know have a strategic advantage that was in fact illegal anyway he was a i guess i would call him private investigator I, I, i'm not exactly sure what he called himself but he and bert were in the office <laughs> and they said to me famously or infamously they said this boy has accused Michael of molesting him and the kid from the Laugh Factory who was hanging out at the Laugh Factory. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um and they said the Santa Barbara police, you know, were going to Neverland Ranch. They had a search warrant and they Michael was already on his way out of the country. And they said, you know, you need to be aware of this and you need to get on a plane and get out there. And what they said to me, which is kind of funny in retrospect, was, you know, we we're gonna keep it out of the press. Don't worry. <laughs> and I said, Okay. So I got on a plane and I flew to Bangkok. And now, why did you go to Bangkok when he was? He was in Bangkok. Oh, okay. We were all in Bangkok, all his tour people and everything. And he played the first show. I was, I think I was supposed to be there four days. And he played the first show. And I don't know, it was one or two days into being there that the world press found out about it. And, you know, it was, it, I, now we have these 24 hour news cycles, but back then it wasn't like that. And to say this press descended on us in bangkok i mean we were our hotel was filled with reporters we were jostling they would try to walk into our rooms when we opened the door it was insane and so you know i was i think of myself as having been a baby lawyer then and i was kind of you know charged <laughs> with all this craziness that was going on but anyway that was bert said to me you got to stay out there with him and so that was a big turning point. I was in this tour. I was stayed out on this tour with him for three or four months. Now, tell me your day-to-day -day responsibilities in Bangkok with Michael Jackson and the tour. Like, are you, does he want you to just hang with him as a calming force and a legal force? Or do you never, are you never in his physical presence? No, I was in his physical presence. I mean, he, he, he definitely... You know, had plenty of time where he was, he was by himself, by choice. But he was around for sure. And we had, you know, we, we he had three planes. We there were three planes that traveled. So sometimes I would fly with him, and sometimes I wouldn't. But my the um the main gist of my responsibilities had to do with the fact that you know Michael was a really as someone who's familiar with tours, which I know you are. Um, he had a very unusual setup. He he would go to each city for a week and play two shows. The economics of that are unusual. And in almost every city we were in, he would play one show and then not play the other one because he was under a tremendous amount of pressure and he was also having some physical issues. So a lot of what I was doing was managing the 
relationship with the promoters and the people who were invested in these um, concerts. That Which every happen. single one of them was losing money on the... Oh, my God. And, and, you know, in some of these countries, it's not like here, we were, you know, threatened. It, there was lots of crazy craziness. And also there were just issues related to what was happening. So, you know, they needed a person there to be managing that. So it was it was a very unusual life experience and um it, and it was it was that being on that tour that really thrust me out of the nest of i you know as unhappy as i was practicing law in the way that i was practicing law i probably would have stayed there forever it's just kind of how i am wired but when i went out on that tour and i was around all these people not michael but the people who were involved with the tour, musicians and dancers and singers and people who were so in their right place in the universe, who loved what they did, who were living and breathing. It really was, I had kind of a personal epiphany about it. And I said, clearly I'm not going to do any of those things, but I could try to find something that was closer to something that I would really enjoy. And that, that, that really was a, a, a turning point for me because I should have understood that earlier, but I didn't. How important it is to try to get close to something you love because your ability to succeed is so much greater. You bring your smartest, sharpest self when you're doing something that you like and find interesting. I mean, it seems self-evident, but I'm not sure that it is. You're such a grounded person. So <laughs> you're, I just am thinking back and, you know, you're there at that meeting mm -hmm. here right across the street. Yeah. You walk out of the meeting, you go to Bangkok, the press descends, you spend your first moments or hours with Michael after everything breaks loose and you're alone with him mm -hmm. and you see how he is as a person before it goes down and after it goes down. A couple of things. How did he handle, like, what changed in his demeanor from before all the hell broke loose and after? And when you left him after that first meeting, after all the press descended and all the craziness, and you went back to your hotel room, you closed the door and you put your head on the pillow, what was your opinion of what went down, really? say this you know even before all of that happened which was you know which was obviously changed the course of the perception about him and his life but even before that you know Michael had such a fragility about him he had life crazy you know life experiences I think he was well versed with good things and bad things happening and so I mean that it was extreme and it was very rough going for him but in some weird way, it was just another evolution of the universe he lived in. You know, I mean, for a guy like that who was famous so young and had tremendous talent and had such issues with his family, I mean, I, it was always sort of heartbreaking to me that he seemed so incredibly alone, even though he had packs of people around him all the time. And um, so, you know, he was, I think he was broken before that, but his brokenness became even more evident as that was all you know unfolding he still had a sense of humor though I mean he was he <laughs> when that first happened in Bangkok there was 
you know, I could tell you stories about the whole thing because it's it it's a it was an interesting experience. But, um, and despite the fact that I'm holding a microphone in my hand, I really am kind of camera shy. I don't like to be in front of anything. But there was one point in which I got pulled in front of a whole bunch of, you know, press with cameras on. There he had PR people there, but it was just circumstantial. I got pulled from in front of people, and so I you know had to talk to them. And I I assumed. You know, no one would ever see it. I didn't say anything particularly interesting. And then I started getting calls from home because it was on the news here in, in the United States. But the fun, one of the funny things that happened was, you know, I just, my memories, the things that I carry, the memories about Michael are, you know, funny little bits and pieces of this and that. Because I remember being in my hotel room and he called me on the phone and I answered the phone, you know, in his little voice. And he was like, I saw you on the news. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I was just dying because I found the whole thing so embarrassing. And I said, you did? And he said, yeah. He said, you look good. He told me. <laughs> I was like, well, okay. Michael thought I looked good. That's good. That's he awesome. Was, he was he was funny. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Okay. So you, you're, you, so you're bitten by the entertainment bug. What's next? Well, you know, I, I came back actually – he ended up leaving the firm as a client. Um, I think I worked with him for like three years or something like that. And when he left, I went back to sort of my traditional corporate practice. You can imagine how deadly that was following, you know, running around with him. So I decided I would try to get a job in the movie business. And really, I, I, I went on a series of interviews with Warner Brothers. And then this movie division at Turner was being started. Um, there was a company called now, Turner Pictures. Yep. Did you do that while you were still had the job over here? Oh yeah, yeah. Did they know you were looking? I don't remember to be honest. Got it. I mean, I had really close friends there, so I'm sure I wasn't keeping mm -hmm. secrets. But and by the way, I did mention I don't think I was very good at that job, so I don't know that they were crying over me leaving. I mean, I don't know. If you um, weren't that good at the job, they don't fly you to Bangkok to hang with Michael Jackson. <laughs> I don't know, but um. This company was formed, Turner Pictures, and uh, they offered me a job, and I took it. And it was, you know, two years. Amy Pascal was the head of it. What was the job? Um, well, I was in the legal department. I was the baby. Got it. I w there were three lawyers, and I was the baby lawyer. And then. Um, and Amy Pascal, of course, is the uh, president of Sony. Yes. Pictures. Yes, and. Um, One of the most powerful women in and or men or alien in this business. Yeah, she used to call me. You, the tall drink of water, she used to say, <laughs> which I always got kind of a kick out of. Anyway, it, that, that was just the start, and it went um, from one thing to another. Turner Pictures was merged into Warner Brothers, and then from there, you know, I knew all the Turner TV people because we were housed together, and then I got offered a position in business affairs, and also in the building you can see out your window. And I did that for a number of years, and then it's just been a progression. You know, um, Turner has... The significance of the original programming, the piece that I'm involved in now, has just grown exponentially in every way. And it went from being, you know, a small piece of the puzzle to a major piece of the puzzle. And Turner went from being a small piece of Time Warner to the major piece of Time Warner. So, you know, there's the importance of what we, the group I work with, what we do has just gotten very big over time. But there's a lot of people who come and go, yet... For some reason, there's a lot of people that, in a nice way, I'll say, get their asses handed to them. There's a lot of people who leave and 
there's other positions out there that they think would be best for them. There's a lot of people who have long-time services with this company, and they're not there anymore. And you're there. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? And don't be humble. Well. Please. <laughs> um, You know, I make this joke that, and, and I, I do this to mock myself, that my tombstone is going to say, Sandra Dewey, capable. <laughs> and that's, that's so sad. That's so sad. It's like, and my, my horoscope is I'm a Capricorn, and Capricorns are hardworking, and they're the ones that get things done, and everyone else relies on them. And and I say, I have Aquarius envy. I want to be the one that's like, you know, having fun and hanging out and, the you know, doing interesting, crazy things. I do have a little bit of that side of me, I I think, I hope. But, you know, I don't know. I am a, I, for good or for bad, I am a capable person. I really, you know, if you give me something to do, I'm going to do it. And I think it does help that people understand that I approach things intentionally with integrity and I care about other people. And, you know, it shouldn't be as rare as it is, but I think that is not the most common combination of factors out there in the universe. I'm making it sound like our business isn't full of wonderful people, and it is. But, um, yeah, I would say that's it. I'm smart. Do you, now, be, <laughs> be, you are smart. Now, because your, your ties are with business affairs, mm-hmm. which are tied to deals, isn't it like a weird, like, hasn't it been like a strange conflict of interest where... Let's say there's a great executive that you're bringing into the fold of the company. Their deal has to be made. You might not want to necessarily do it because you're going to be working closely with them, but I would imagine that you are consulted and they go to you and you go to them without sort of anybody really having that kind of like feeling about it when they come in. Mm-hmm. Is it odd like when people come into the company and you know everything about every nuance of their deal? I mean, uh, it's not weird for me. I'm I'm used to it and I frankly think they probably don't think about it. You know? I would, you know, to me it would be like you know, cuz when I I haven't gone to a lot of companies, I've spent 8 years at one company and there were maybe three people who knew what my deal was there. Mm-hmm. And the other executives had no idea what my deal I'm sure they assumed what my deal was. Mm-hmm. And every time I was in a room with the people who knew what my deal was, I think I felt a little different. Yeah. It's like someone who's seen you naked. Yeah, well, that would be much worse. <laughs> uh, because then that would be very traumatic for them. I don't know. I think, look, I our... The original programming group at Turner, I mean, it's it's not so small anymore. There's a hundred and something people, but it, it still feels small. And I think for the people who work there, they understand they understand my role in it. I don't I don't think there's a sensitivity about that. I don't got it. Um, and I'm going to ask you about a few things, and then if you feel comfortable, great. If you don't feel comfortable don't want this to be totally stress-free um 
I want to talk about a few people who I have an enormous amount of respect for. Okay. Um, Michael Wright. So Michael Wright is a person who um, I was the head of the network, president of the network for a long time, both networks, started as an actor, again, a person who started in a place, mm-hmm. whatever. And in my career, I did many things that upset him. Uh, yeah. Many things where he was violently and not violently, but he was very angry at me for for how I handled certain things when I was trying to, you know, fight for my artist or whatever. Yeah. But I always, uh, I always admired and respected him and the job that he did, and um, I was always, um, you know, when you see some a place go from a certain position to another position you have to look at the facts and the facts are that something's happening that wasn't maybe necessarily happening before. And this person, the way they do things might have something significant to do with it. And I remember his philosophy, which I, I always remember him saying this and, you know, he might say, well, Barry, it's not anything original or new, but I just go with it. Is that my main goal when I'm working with talent is to, hire these incredibly talented people and get out of the way yeah that was that was his um specific philosophy was to let people do what they do well and you know to not have too many fingers in it yeah and i think people really appreciated that about him and liked working for the networks because they could you know be the predominant voice in terms of executing things creatively yeah, and so you 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 spend many years working with somebody side by side mm-hmm. with them, and then because you're the head of the business affairs as well, and you're working on the other side as well, you sort of get a sense of when things are happening, sort of before they're happening or right when they're happening, and you're put in these positions. This is why I'm so fascinated by fascinated by sitting across from you because I think you're pretty aware that there's no one like you that I know of in uh, this town. I don't think I know any president who is in the business affairs world and in the production and network world and and goes back and forth. I don't know of any person in this town that I, and if you could name one, please tell me. So here you are, you're like, you're, you know, these are friends of yours. These are people, colleagues, and yet you get inklings of things and probably knowledge of things because of your job before other people do. And then you have to walk through the hallways and you have to wonder, how do I go about and how do I handle things and how do I keep relationships and how do I do things and to me that would be incredibly stressful yet when I sit across from you I don't know what it is it just seems like you you're able to persevere how do you handle those situations well you know look um there was a period of time at Turner recently where you know, when Michael left and Steve Coonan, who was both Michael's and my boss, who had run the networks for, I don't know, ten, I'm going to say 10 years, something in that neighborhood, um, they both left. 
And there was a void in leadership at Turner, and it lasted for a while, six months, nine months, or something like that. And that was a really challenging period because um, with uncertainty comes you know, fear, sometimes terror. And I watched people who I'd worked with a really long time and knew very well become people that I didn't really recognize because there was a lot of competition and posturing and territory grabbing out of fear that was going on and at each other's expense from a group that had really so successfully been collaborative and supportive of one another. And that tortured me, you know, because I really felt like maybe it was a lot to ask of people to, you know, just sort of be calm and wait things out and see where it landed. And you're asking people to be calm. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, two thirds of your, I'll say brain trust or top of the ladder Mm -hmm. are sort of gone. And, you know, we could all speculate in the world of why they uh, left and how the circumstances were, and I'm not going to put you in that position here, and people can read about it and make their own judgments mm-hmm. um, because that wouldn't be fair to you. But also, you're, you know, you're standing there and you're wondering, uh, wow, uh, this is happening, uh, and you're being asked to kind of right the ship, not knowing whether you're going to be on the ship. Well, yes, that's that's the point. Like, I had the same uncertainty everyone else did about, you know, whether I was going to stay or what my role was going to be. And I was asked to um, step up and into a leadership role in the interim. Um, so that was really, that was really interesting. And, and I, you know, people say that I don't, I don't show it on the outside. I think I appear <laughs> calmer than I am sometimes. I had a lot of, I, I don't know, anxiety might not be the right word, but I, I felt a weight of responsibility for the group and all these people that I cared about and many of whom I thought were so smart and so talented and I wanted to see them treated properly. And, you know, I, I felt um, some responsibility to try to help guide things in the right direction. I had a lot of sleepless nights during that period. And, you know, many, many people lost their jobs. And that's that's a really hard thing to go through, you know. But it's business. It happens. And, um, you know, now I it it's important to, once you get to the other side of it, not to diminish, you know, the outcome for those people who lost their jobs because that's brutal. But, you know, at some point you got to brush yourself off and um, point towards what the future is going to look like. And so it's nice to be in that phase. And, you know, we have a new boss, Kevin Riley. Who I know very well, who uh, was there when I started Last Comic Standing, and uh, another guy who I've had incredible experiences with and uh, will be doing the podcast soon. And uh, I get such a kick out of him. He cracks me up. I mean, yeah, he cracks me up. He's very different. I mean, for someone like me who's been there a really long time and during the Steve Coonan, Michael era, it was a there there was such stability with the senior team of executives was the same for like 12 years. I was in the same meetings with the same group of people that really were responsible for decision making at those networks. Now they're, they're virtually all gone. So it's it's and 
I haven't had a boss. I mean, Steve Kuna was my boss, but he was across the country. So I was the boss of this group for many, many, many years. And now I have a boss down the hall, you know, because I report to Kevin. So I sometimes have to remind myself what it's like to work for someone instead of <laughs> the opposite. It's It kind of cracks me up. But I think he's the kind of person, the way I remember him, and uh, and I think I would hope that he's the same way, is that I don't think that... Uh, he thinks of you as somebody who thinks of him as their boss. No, he's been, he has been, without dwelling too much on it, I will say the uncertainty about what my role would be was cleared up pretty quickly by Kevin. And I was so appreciative. I mean, he definitely came in and said to me, you know, which was so gracious. He, he said the day after he was announced, he called me and said that he had heard nice things about me and he was looking forward to, um, you know, working together. And I said, that I appreciated that, which I truly do. But I said, you know, you, you need to form your own opinion about me. And, and so he came in and we worked together for a while and, you know, obviously very closely because he was trying to get to know how things worked and in this big new machine. And very quickly he came and said, you know, you're going to play an important role in this. And, and I, I, I am deeply appreciative about that. And he does refer to me, um, frequently as his partner which I which I like but I will tell you a funny story about him because he remembers he's my boss trust me when he had been there a very you know I think this was in December it was right before the holiday he was asking me about when I would be in the office over the holiday and I told him and then I said because I I was working basically but I said to him by the way I should let you know I have a big vacation planned I'm going to Thailand in January and he said January what and I said January 15th and he looked at me and he said, are you punking me right now? And I said, <laughs> no. And he was like, well, uh, he was so unhappy that I was going on this vacation. And I was like, dude, this was planned long before you were here. I don't know what you want from me. You know, like, and I thought he would laugh it off. No. And he brought it up. And he brought it up. And, he brought it up. <laughs> and so finally, this one day, we were just walking down the hallway together. And he said something, you know, like, oh, this vacation of yours. And I just stopped and I said, that's it. I said, what? What? I, and I held up my fingers because there was, I think it was Martin Luther King's birthday. I held up six fingers. I said, this is how many days I'm going to be out of the office. I said, is this some kind of supreme compliment? You can't live without me for this many days? And he looked at me and he kind of laughed. He goes, you really want me to stop bringing this up? And I said, I said, yes, yes, I do. And he said, no, I can't deliver that. <laughs> So in the meantime, now he has me living in fear of my vacations. Like, you know, like I have to run down there and say, which I would ask anyone about going on vacation in, you know, 12 years. I, so that's an interesting new twist. That's awesome. Daddy's in the house. <laughs> that's awesome. But you, what's, what's, what's I find great about Kevin is, and I could say this if you were sitting here, you know, when you have somebody who literally has done great work and still gotten the shit kicked out of you in this business, that's like the rarest of the rare. You know, because basically everything everywhere, anybody out there in any job out there, the whole thing everybody tells you is do great work. Exceed everyone's expectations. Do better than everybody else and you will be rewarded. But for Kevin Riley, a guy who at NBC, I believe he had five top shows, 
and they say, you know, let me, let's make a change in bringing a guy who's, you know, never really done this kind of thing before and, uh, you know, kind of a wild card, but I will shake it up a little bit, you know. Yeah. Let's fix what isn't broken. And then, you know, he goes to Fox and even as difficult as it is, had some amazing moments at Fox. Well, amazing and, moments. And and look at, you know, he developed Empire. Yes. And uh, that's just, you know, to have that kind of crazy um, sort of gravity-defying hit after you've left, I, you know, I just shake my head that he didn't get to enjoy that success because mm. that show is just doing astronomically well. Yeah, and that, but that's the, that's the way it is with him. It seems like... So I think he... Even though he busted your balls a little bit, I I feel like I always felt that he had a little bit of humility based on the oh, things he, that have been happening have happened to him. Look, I I don't know him that well, but I can tell you that in our short tenure, first of all, I am someone who just is in awe of his pedigree. I think he's been responsible or had a hand on so much of what I consider to be great television that it's hard not to be impressed with. If, with his history, if you follow it, but I find him to be, you know, really smart and, um, and yeah, humble. I mean, he's he's very directed. He's sort of fierce in how he approaches things. Like he definitely has his eye on where he's going and is on a determined march to get there. And I think, you know, sort of expects and demands excellence from those people around him. But, um, fun and humble and super smart. That's a pretty good package. Absolutely. Now, uh, before we get into the final roundup, you were very involved in the Kona deal. Yes. Very involved in that deal. And um, so was Steve Coonan, mm-hmm. but you were you were very involved in deal making. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you make a deal with a guy whose last deal called for him to get a $40 million penalty if something didn't go right. And he was actually paid $40 million to not perform on a network. How is it possible to make a deal that somebody's going to be happy with after they've made $40 million for not even putting time in in front of a camera? A po- that, that's in addition to everything he made. How well, do you how do you put a deal like that together, knowing well, that you can never equal what it was that he did? Is it being creative and saying, okay, so we can't do this, but we will let you own this? Like, how do you do it? Well, first of all, if someone has just made $40 million, I mean, not to say that money doesn't matter, it always matters, but that is not a person who's coming to do a show for you for the paycheck. They have a lot of paycheck in the bank already, number one. Number two, Turner is such a quiet enterprise in the world of entertainment, but we can write some really big checks too. I I don't, you know, obviously I can't talk about that deal, but I think it, it would take a lot to um, make us say that's something we can't afford. We, we have the ability to make some very competitive and very large deals. But I think with Conan... It was really all about whether or not he could be, not convinced, but he could see that there was an opportunity for him at TBS. That was the whole thing. I mean, whether he could be convinced that that was the right 
um, venue for him to be who he is and to reach the audience he wanted to reach. Conan likes to, you know, work and perform and and interact with his audience. And I I don't think anyone would mind me saying this. I think it's funny. We went over when that happened. When, when he exited NBC and we asked, we had to pressure WME to have him take a meeting with us. And we thought well, it- William Morris Endeavor, his agency. Yes, yes thank you. And um, when we were going over there for the meeting, we, we thought it was the longest of long shots. I mean, no one was driving over there thinking we're, we were gonna walk out with Conan. And Gavin Pallone. Yeah, it, it was Gavin Pallone. His manager. And Rick Rosen and um, Jeff Ross, his longtime producing partner. Not Jeffrey Ross, the comedian. Jeff Ross, the executive producer of the show. Yes, and then from our side, it was Steve Coonan and Michael Wright and myself. And we went over and we had a meeting. Steve Coonan, I will say, he's, you know, um, Steve Coonan, my former boss at Turner, um, he was brilliant in the room. He's really a smart and colorful and interesting guy. And if I could just uh, stop you for a second. Steve Coonan, for those of you who don't know, very, very colorful guy. He's done the podcast kind of like a larger than life almost like a i could say this like a a cherubic kind of figure like who's this huggable and lovable guy he you know has kind of like a little kind of like a lisp in his speech and he kind of has this lovable way of just getting you to feel comfortable and he uses i think his the way he is in a way where he gets a sense of humor going and he's very funny and i believe one of the things he shared with me was that he he walked in and he was like coonan 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 <laughs> something like that and he just did uh, i don't remember that but that well could have happened but you know steve is steve is um funny and warm and avuncular but fierce underneath i mean he is a he is a guy you never want to underestimate i will tell you as someone who worked next to him for a long time but he he really presented to conan the notion of tbs as a network that has a really young following and where he could have um, a canvas to make the show that he wanted to make and not be sort of constrained in the way he may have been and um, we were told afterwards that when we left they literally said where's TBS on the dial? Like they did not know the network at all. So that was, it was a long journey from that first meeting to, you know, sort of getting it in the bag. But the business deal, it, that was fun. That was fun to listen to what mattered to them and to try to get there. And you got there. And yeah. now a couple of years later or three years later, do you think that Conan, and it's hard for you to say, do you think that Conan... Obviously, he loves the network and he loves the people that are so supportive. And they, and like you say, they get out of the way and they let him do what he does. Do you think he feels like, you know, sometimes I wonder sometimes with artists. Because artists like comedians sometimes will go on in a show. Mm -hmm. They'll go on at the improv or the laugh factory or the comedy store and they'll walk off stage and they'll say, oh, that crowd sucked. And then, you know, three comedians later, somebody will go on and get a standing ovation. And I think one of the most difficult things as an artist is trying to figure out the variables, mm -hmm. how the variables affected you, and then look in the mirror and say, what are the things about myself that are not making the variables go a certain way? And there are certain artists, and, and Cone and I have so much respect for, and I don't know the answer to this, there are certain artists that go to certain places and no matter where they they go, they wonder, okay, well, then this is why that happened or that's why that happened. Do you feel that Conan feels like 
things are going better than he thought they would, less than what he thought they would, or exactly the same as he thought they would. Well, and I, and his brain trust. I I would give huge props to Conan for understanding before the rest of the television world caught up about what the future looks like and where audiences are because he has a gigantic following digitally. You know, if you look at the numbers of who he interacts with, whether it's on YouTube or through various portals, these are numbers that are competitive with the people who are at the top of that game out there. And so I I think he's having a a great renaissance right now because as more and more moves into that space he is very agile there and and has a really devoted following i also think with the sea change at turner with kevin coming in that kevin and conan um are are like-minded about you know i think he feels really reinvigorated right at this moment i don't know if you saw recently he he um took his show to cuba and he he did an episode from there and I just defy you not to really laugh watching that thing. I mean, it's it's him at his best. And, um, you know, as we talk about trying to reach ever and ever younger audiences, um, he, he has always had kind of a sweet spot with these, you know, taped pieces that air in his show. But I have my own personal little um, uh, test kitchen with my 25-year-old niece who is a total millennial. She is classic. And she's always showing me stuff. And I really got such a kick out of it when she just in the last, you know, six months is routinely rolling these Conan pieces into um, the stuff she shows me. And so I think he's even at this stage where he's a very, you know, experienced season um, guy, he's reestablishing himself and his role with the young audience that's in a certain space. So he gets huge props for that. And uh, one little thing uh, as a side note, uh, when somebody like that believes in somebody a lot and you just, you want to listen and you want to move forward on something. And uh, he decided that he uh, wanted to do a late night show after him with Pete Holmes, who's an incredibly talented and wonderful, sweet, incredible person. Very fun. And so... They do the show, and it appears it, it appears from you know the layman like myself that it's it's not doing extraordinarily well, but it appears like it's not doing horrible. It appears like it's it appears like it's doing like Conan did when he started at NBC. There's some. You know, people are thinking one way or the other, but he's still trudging on. Mm-hmm. And people have respect for him. And then he, he works through it and he goes. And sometimes from the outside looking in, you you, you show you see a show get canceled. And you wonder, well, it can't cost a lot to produce this show. It, look, it, it looks like it's a really inexpensive show to produce. <laughs> like it looks like it looks like it's probably five percent of the budget or ten percent of the budget of Conan's show. Mm-hmm. So you ask yourself, well, why do they cancel it after two years? Why don't they just? And what's what? I mean, it's certainly not losing money. Like why? Why don't they 
keep it going and let it keep building. Well, you know, that's a decision that um, could have been made just as easily as the decision that was made. I'm sure Pete Holmes would love to hear that, but sorry about that, Pete. I think, you know, look, I think the real answer is that that late night space is not something that this network has a lot of experience in. And so um, I think the audience that came was small enough that um, it was a question mark and there wasn't enough expertise to sort of decide what to do with that or how to reshape it. I think if, if that sequence of events with that show were playing out now with Kevin there, perhaps, you know, something different would have happened because Pete is definitely a great piece of talent and would be a great piece of talent for the network. And I think, you know, if, if, I'm not faulting anyone as I, we've been talking about through this whole thing. There was a lot of shifting pieces going on during this period. But um, I think, you know, if you're standing on solid ground and you look at it, you say, Pete Holmes is a guy we want to be in business with. And, you know, if this isn't exactly performing the way we want it to, what can we do with him that, you know, has a different kind of shot? I think we would probably handle it that way now. Got it. All right. Final roundup. Okay. Your biggest disappointment in show business. And how did it drive you to be a better executive and a better person? Well, I don't know. I, I, I guess it's a good thing that I don't have examples rushing to mind. I would say that um, I, I get disappointed I mean, I, I, I'm going to make this a little bit abstract out of necessity, but I get disappointed when I see people who are in a position of success and power and have the ability to positively influence other people's careers. Um, instead, make the choice to sort of keep people down because they're breathing rarefied air and they don't want more people up there. And that, I, I, I see it happen too frequently. And um, that mentality of keeping other people down is just intolerable to me. Um, so I've, I've seen some of that and it's happened to me and it's happened to people close to me. And I really wanna say, you know, first of all, to them, the ability to have a positive impact on people is <laughs> so much more satisfying than whatever it is you think you're accomplishing. And um, and doing it the way they're doing it is not invisible, which I think they think it is. It's always obvious. So. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that so many times. It's, it's tough to take and it's very hard to turn anybody like that around. Mm -hmm. I've, I've never been successful turning anybody like that around mm -hmm. ever. And that's the one probably failure that I, in my life that I can never seem to make that impact to, to bring them into a Sandra Dewey-esque form of light. Your proudest moment in show business. My proudest moment. I don't, gosh. I mean, there, I, there have been a, I think, um, I hope this isn't obnoxious. P 
please God, let this not be obnoxious. Um, you know, when I recently was promoted, when I got this president's title, I felt in a way that I don't let myself too often, I felt enormously proud of it for a couple of reasons. One of which is I know my company and I know that you don't get there, you don't get there easily and without a lot of resistance. It is politically just a difficult place to get to. So the fact that I was able to accomplish that made me really proud. But, but even more than that, I think that, you know, we've talked, <laughs> I don't want to cry on your podcast, but you know, we've talked about my educational background mm -hmm. and I really do see myself, I'm saying this self-mockingly as like a woman of the people. Like I am hand in hand with the people that I work with. And I feel like for all of these people who are at earlier stages of their career and they're plotting and they see me succeed, I really do feel in a way that they say, you know, Sandra can do that and I can do that. And that gives me so much satisfaction to know that if in some way it's um, inspirational or helpful to other people, it's like great reward in that. That's awesome. And Ted Turner obviously has to have been somebody who's a mentor in your life and somebody who you look at and you're like in awe of everything and had that kind of relationship. Just tell us something about the man because you don't see it from the outside. Something that we could all take with us to show what kind of person he really is to you and to your life and to the company. Well, you know, Ted, sadly, for those of us that work there, you know, hasn't really been a part of our day-to-day -day existence since he left after the Turner AOL Time Warner merger. Ted had had enough. Um, but I think we all, we all use his example for the same reasons. I mean, he was crazy, you know, crazy good and some crazy not so good. But, but what he was was fearless and audacious and and what I really love about him and what I don't have is, you know, he wasn't afraid of something that seemed impossible. There was no challenge too big. He was just not a guy who ever said, I can't do that. He only said, I can do that. And um, I find that particularly inspirational. You know, I, I, I say to my kids, um, aim high, you know, aim high. I don't always do that. See, now I'm contradicting myself about setting an example I want them to follow. But, you know, you're certainly not going to get to your highest level of achievement and accomplishment if you yourself are setting your target beneath it, you know. So I think Ted is a great inspiration in that way. Awesome. Last question, your advice that you would have for a young person living in a small one-horse town uh, wondering like how they're going to get to the next level and become the kind of executive that you become. And also what advice, because you've worked with so many talented actors, actresses, comedians, what advice would you have for those young artists as well of what it would take to, to make the kind of impact to be recognized and be a huge star on your network? Well, I think the road to success, regardless of, you know, which uh, point of entry you're coming in, whether you want to be a business person or a lawyer or an artist, 
there are some there are some fundamental truths across the board. One of which is, um, you have to start with personal excellence. You have to be, you know, you have to understand that some people, and in, in the rarest of circumstances, get lucky. But for most people, you have to be really good at what you do. You have to want to be really good at what you do. You have to commit to it and settle for nothing less than your best execution of what you can do. And sadly, that that in and of itself, even if you achieve that, is not enough. That is your basis from which you start. And then I would say, which not enough people do this, you have to be a student of a couple of things. You have to be a student of people. You have to watch and learn from people and see how they interact and how to be successful in different circumstances. You know, you're not always presented with the same framework. You know, some environments are hostile, some are friendly, some require different things. If you can't walk into a room and have a fairly accurate read about what the expectations are and how to succeed in that environment, you're handicapping yourself. So, you know, it, it, it sounds abstract, but the more, you know, in your life, look at people who are doing things in an exceptional way and ask yourself, how and why they're doing that. And you don't want to copy anyone, but you want to take lessons from that. When you see people who are extraordinary, you know, pick up some of the pieces of that. And just as importantly, look at people who are just what you would consider to be failing, you know, who are doing things in a way that you say, I would never want to handle that way. And that becomes part of your lesson. And I think the more that you can understand other human beings and why things happen a certain way, the more you can position yourself for success. And then I would say as the last piece, you know, be a student of your industry, because even whether you're an actor or a business person or a development executive, the more you understand how it works and why and the different pieces of the puzzle is going to inform how you do the thing that you do and will make you smarter and better and more impressive to the people who are ultimately going to make decisions about your future. Awesome. <laughs> Sandra Dewey. Jeez. I'm going to go back and listen to your other podcasts and see if you tell everyone they're the light. Because if they are, I'm going to be super mad. <laughs> Holy shit. That's a long fly ball. It's deep. <laughs> the Atlanta Braves hit another home run for Ted Turner. Anyway, so, no, that was just fantastic. I don't, I don't, I don't think I've said that to anybody except the last 80 podcast. <laughs> <No. laughs> uh, that was so wonderful. You know, I think to myself, Walking through that hallway, Kevin Riley, the new president of the TBS and TNT. Well, he's, he's the president of the networks. I'm a president of a piece of the networks. That's right. Well, I just think just that, to clarify, Kevin. That's okay. I just think of him walking the hallway with you, saying, "Listen, I've heard you're a nice person. People say you're really nice, and you said something to the effect of, "Well, I'd like you to form your own opinion of me,' mm -hmm. and I." assure you after this podcast is listened to by millions of people probably that everybody will form their own opinion of you and they will know that you are one of the most amazing and extraordinary people that I've ever had on the show and I'm very grateful you're here thank you so much oh, thanks Barry thank you and as always You've been listening to me, Barry Katz, on another episode of Industry Standard. And if you like the show, please, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, please, please tell all your friends.
They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name and put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.